One of the words in our English language that is maybe the most flexible word in the English language is the word love. Um, We use the word love for a lot of things. Um, I love my wife and my kids, my family, right? That's the way that we use love. That's a deep and meaningful way. But we use that same word for a ton of other stuff. Like, I love my family. We expect that. But then you don't even hesitate if I say, and I also love, I don't know, Italian food, right? I love pizza, um, or I love chicken, chicken wings, or whatever it might be. We use the exact same word to mean that we have a love for food. Um, or I love a certain sports team. I love the Alabama Crimson Tide. This is me speaking on your behalf, not necessarily me speaking. Uh, but I, whatever your sports team is, we have no hesitancy, right? For me, I love the Dallas Cowboys, or I um, love the, the North Carolina Tar Heels basketball team. I know, whatever. Right, we love, we use the same word for our sports team. We use it for our pets. We use the same word for our wife as we do our pet. Um, we, some of you used it this weekend. Like, I love sleeping an extra hour. All right? I love getting extra sleep. Again, no one told my internal clock this. I didn't get to set it back. So 4 a.m., I'm like, hello, world. Um, I love, we use that word, I love those things. Uh, we use it about people that we do not even know. I love this actor, or I love uh, this media person, or I love watching this news channel, or whatever it might be. We use it about our devices. I love my iPhone, or I love um, my uh, AirPods, or whatever it is. Uh, We use it about vehicles. I love this car. I love this truck. I love whatever it might be. Like, is there any word in the English language that has such variety as the word love? And that word is used for everything that you can imagine. It is used for uh, everything from the most self-centered, self-serving lust. We'll use the word love for that. It's used for the affection that we might feel for a companion or friend. Um, It's used for even all the way to the most self-sacrificing passion that we might feel for those that we care about the most deep, right? Um, Same word, all different levels of meaning. All different levels of meaning. I love chicken wings, but I'm not going to die for chicken wings, right? Same word, different levels of meaning. Some of you are like, there's a food that I would die for. You use that phrase on occasion. It's worth dying for, right? I love at all different levels. There's an endless list of songs, movies, art, books, stories, text messages that are written on the subject of love. As a matter of fact, it is the most central theme of any type of song, movie, story, all those things that we mentioned. As Freddie Mercury said it so clearly, love is a crazy little thing. So this series, Omnipotent, we've been saying that God can do anything that he wants or desires that does not contradict or violate who he is, his nature. And that word nature is important. Because of who God is, because of his nature, he cannot do certain things. We've looked at them. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot change. Today we're going to talk about this one. God cannot stop loving. God cannot stop loving. Because of his nature, because of who he is, God cannot stop loving those upon whom he sets his affection. 1 John 
uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Look what John says here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because, and here it is, God is love. Now, we'll be back to this text in a few moments. But again, notice, God is, John says, is love. He doesn't say God is loving. He doesn't say God loves even though that's implied, right? He says, God is love. Love is who God is. God is eternally giving of himself to others. God is always unselfishly seeking our ultimate good. God is love. We've also said throughout this whole series, as part of the series, the other primary thought of the series is the things that God can, cannot do are things that we can do and things that we do because of our nature. Because of who we are. And when it comes to this idea of love, we can stop loving. We can be unloving. We can be unlovable. Our love is naturally, because of who we are, our love is naturally selfish. It's naturally self-focused. It's naturally self-centered. We love by nature with conditions, not without conditions. We are not love. God is love. And we are not love. Now, the language in which the New Testament was written had three common words for love that portrayed these different levels of love that we don't necessarily have in our English language. Let me just mention them to you because they help us understand this idea. One of those words was the word eros. Um, you can hear eros. You can hear uh, like where we get the word erotic. Um, eros love was strictly self-centered. Strictly self-focused. It was often tied to um, sex. It was just a self-centered love. Eros is all about what I get out of it. It is all about me. Uh, feelings of love or affection are triggered by what the other person can give me. Can the other person give me affection? Can they give me kindness? Do I like them? Do I get their attention? It's Eros love. Eros is ultimately just love of myself. I love you because of what you give me because you make me happy, because you make me satisfied, because of what you contribute to my life. And once the kind of self-centered feelings are gone, then eros, love, vanishes. It's gone. I hear this all the time um, as, a, um, as a pastor. Um, I, I meet with couples that are maybe struggling at times in their marriage, and I cannot even tell you how many times I have heard it said, um, I love him or her but I am not in love with him or her. Heard that a million times. Nothing new under the sun, right? It's no like, oh my, I've never heard that one before. Now, that's Eros love. What can I get out of it? What is it? How does it make me happy? How does she make me happy? Or couples will say, we just don't have that spark any longer. Some of you have thought those things. You may have said those things, right? Now, that's Eros love. What happens? The ideal, like whatever you picture it as love is in a marriage relationship, the ideal becomes less than ideal. Reality simply sets in. And the next thing you know, you now wake up beside grumpy, right? You always heard that? Ask the lady, like, do you wake up grumpy? She's like, no, why would I wake him up? I let him sleep. doesn't take long to get into the marriage until you realize that now you wake up beside cranky and stanky, right? Right there 
beside you. It just disappears. The ideal romantic dream is shattered. It's gone. It takes like a week to get there, right? Um, and eros love is what can I get out of it? There's a different level of love, though. It was portrayed by the word phileo. It's a word that we see throughout all of the, all of the New Testament. Uh, you can hear the word phileo is where the word Philadelphia comes from. Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. Now, if you go there, you might disagree, I have to tell you. But that's the name. of uh, The name Philadelphia means that. The city of brotherly love. You ever met an Eagles fan? Not much brotherly love going on. Um, it's kind of a mutual love. It's a reciprocal love. It's the love of friendships and many relationships. There's kind of this give and take, this mutual sharing. Um, phileo is kind of a deeper soul level connection. There's a connection intellectually, emotionally. Um, you're, you choose to be with the person. There's a desire to be with the person. And oftentimes phileo contain kind of these different levels of eros that we do want something out of it. It's not just self-serving, but there's also a willingness to share. A willingness to give of myself to the other person. And so what that means is sometimes you'll overlook some of those flaws, both yours and theirs, um, to help maintain the relationship. The danger of phileo love is that when the expectations or the conditions stop being met, that there's no give and take, then, then that's when it becomes dangerous. Because one-way love for humans is unsustainable. One-directional love most of the time for humans, is simply unsustainable. That's a God-level love. Unless you're God, one-way love is often unsustainable. And then there's a God-level love. You maybe have heard this word before. It's the word agape. Agape is the Greek word that represents the highest form of love. It is completely selfless. It finds delight in giving. It's not self-seeking in any way. It's not generated by feelings. It's not maintained by conditions or worth. Agape love, even when the object is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, unworthy, agape love continues to give. It's not 50-50. It's not mutual. It's not reciprocal. It is just 100% give. It is agape love. Agape loves unconditionally, regardless of the cost, regardless of being abused, regardless of a lack of return. Agape love is sacrificial in every way. God is agape. God is this type of love. Agape love flows from God. God is agape love. As sinners, it is impossible for us to embrace this fully. It's impossible for us to express this fully because this is God-given love. As a sinner, we can't love this way outside of God's grace. Christian belief is rooted in this love. Love is what defines God's relationship with His children. This type of love is what prompted God to intervene on our behalf, to send Jesus to the cross. Agape love hopes and forgives and provides eternal life to the undeserving. This is God love. This is the God is love type of love we're describing. G.K. Chesterton was illustrating this type of love and he used the uh, French novel that's turned into a Disney fairy tale now that most of us know it by, Beauty and the Beast. And Chesterton said about that fairy tale, um, here's the descriptive phrase he used, the illustration phrase um, that describes the story that portrays this idea of love. That unlovely things must be deeply loved before they become lovable. 
unlovely things must be deeply loved before they become lovable. That implies that we're unlovely and that God loves deeply, which enables us to be loved. Now, there's a deep level of what we're talking about there that's not really wrapped up in the Beauty and the Beast story. You know, talking teacups and singing librarians and petals falling off a rose. I'm well-versed in Beauty and the Beast. My oldest daughter, Kaylee, loves, loved and loves Beauty and the Beast. There we go. I just used that word for a cartoon. She loves Beauty and the Beast. She loves her dad and mom. She loves fairy tale cartoons. Same word, we use it. You get the idea, right? Unlovely things must be deeply loved before they become lovable. What Paul says, you can keep your finger in 1 John, we'll be back there, but in Romans chapter 5, I love how Paul articulates this principle. 5, 6 of Romans. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Verse 8. But God shows, He demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There we are. We were the unlovely that Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been now justified by His blood, much more we be, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That God demonstrated his love while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were unlovely, that God demonstrates his love for us, that he loves the unlovely, that he loves the unlovable, so that we might learn to be loved and learn to love. Think about God's love in contrast to how we tend to love. God's love is unconditional. It's not dictated by emotions. It's not dictated by how God's feeling today. It's not dictated how God feels about us. It is unconditional love. His love is without any conditions. God has an unselfish affection for us for our sake. Not for what He can get out of it. God has an unselfish affection for us, for us, for our sake. Our love is conditional. Our love is because of love. I love this person because of, because of what they've added to my life, because of their love for me. I love because of these things. God's love is an in spite of love. He loves us in spite of who we are. He just loves. It is who He is. And He requires nothing from us. It is unconditional love. God's love is unprovoked. Now, we use that word provoked most often when we're talking about something negative. We often hear it um, used in the context of unprovoked violence, right? Or something negative or evil has happened that was, didn't seem to have a reason behind it. An unprovoked attack of some sort. It was not instigated in any way. So, we use that word with God's love. God's love is unprovoked. It just happens. God just loves. There's no ulterior motive. There's no re human reason behind it. It's not in response to something we do. He just lavishes his love on his children. Takes me back to, uh, when we were going through our Exodus series, I read Deuteronomy chapter 7 for you. I want to read it again when God is talking about the Israelites. And this is the theme throughout all of the, the narrative of Scripture. But look what God says about his people 
in Deuteronomy 7, uh, verse 6, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God's like, over all the nations, of all the peoples on the face of the earth, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You are the fewest of all the peoples. It is because the Lord loves you that he just sets his affection on them. That God loves people who never saw it coming. That God loves people who did not have it coming. That God loves people who did not seek it out. That he just sets his love on them. It is just sheer, unadulterated grace. That he just gives it. That he just pursues and seeks us out for no other reason than that is who he is. That he is love. God's love. Unconditional. Unprovoked. Undeserved. It is not based on worth. It's not based on value. It is not earned. It is not won. God's love is not a trophy, right? It's not like you had a successful season. You won first place. You won my, won my love. Like here's your, here's your trophy, right? It's not even like a, a participant's trophy that they give out now, right? Levi just finished soccer season. You know the league I'm talking about. Those first few leagues where they don't keep score, right? Don't keep up with the goals. But every single parent on the sideline knows exactly what the score is, right? Me included. Like, I knew we were undefeated going into the final few games. Like, I let everybody know. We're the one seed. We haven't lost a single game, right? But the coach is just kind of like, well, we don't really keep track of that. What do you mean? Uh, we just kind of give out participant medals at the end. Okay, God's love is not, not even participant level medal. He just, it's not earned, it's not deserved, it's not even like you showed up to play soccer and we gave you a uniform so you earned a trophy. You earned a medal for signing up. Congratulations. It's not even at that level. It is completely undeserved. It's not given to a response to what we do or do not do. It is not reserved for the good and the moral and the thankful and the kind and the sweet and the righteous. It is undeserved. As a human, you ever had those uh, didn't even say thank you moments with your kids or friends? You do something for someone and they didn't even say thank you, right? You had those moments? Do something for the kids, maybe a little sacrificial, maybe they don't even notice, right? And you turn to your spouse or whoever, and it's like, they, they didn't even say thank you. Like, I did this for them, they didn't even say thank you. That's how we're wired. We want the thank you. And we, we do things and then we feel underappreciated or undervalued or hurt. The love of God is showered on the unthankful. Those who don't even stop to say thank you. It's just who he is. And he never wavers. Unconditional, unprovoked, undeserved. That God can never love you any more or love you any less than he does right now. It's my favorite definition of grace. I picked it up from Philip Yancey years ago when I read his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. It was like a pivotal book and part of my spiritual journey of and Yancey wrote this book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He did a, it's on a podcast this week. He just released a memoir. And he was talking about this idea. And it took me back to reading that book and remembering that definition. That God can never love you any more or any less than he does right now. No matter what you do, you can't earn it. No matter what you do, you can't take it away. That God loves you completely, exhaustively, all the time, every moment. Theologian Erickson defines it this way. 
God's love is a, I love this word, disposition of affection toward us. A feeling of unselfish concern and a resolve to act toward us in such a way as to promote our welfare. A disposition of affection. That God is hardwired to love. It is who He is. His disposition is one of affection, of unselfish concern. Again, as sinners, we cannot love this way. Only God can love this way. And yet it is because of His love that we experience this love and we are called to live in this agape love. Listen, take it back to the text. Verse 7 again. Beloved. So even the, the name of those who have experienced God's love is taglined with this idea of being loved by God. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, right? Beloved, those who have experienced God's agape love, love one another. Why? Because God, love is from God, and those who have been brought to life by God know God and reflect His love. John is not suggesting that people who do not Follow Jesus cannot express or receive any type of love, right? He's not saying like you can't love Alabama Crimson Tide, you can't love your wife, can't love your kids. What he's saying is to experience God love, to experience God love, who God is, to experience and to love with the love of God, you must be connected to the source of love. You must be connected through Jesus to love. To who God is. He gives us the opposite in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Those who do not know God cannot love as God loves. Why? Because they're not connected to love. They're not connected through Jesus to the source of love. God is love. And not just a God who loves not just a God who is loving, His very essence, His very nature is love. He cannot behave in any way that is contrary to who He is. He is all love all the time. And those who are connected to God through Christ <clears throat> are defined by His love. That His love shapes who we are. That I am loved by God. That I am loved by love. Verse 9, how do we know this, Paul, uh, John asked. In this, the love of God was made manifest, made visible among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How do we know God is love? Where's the evidence? How is it manifest? Simple. Love acts. The nature of love is that it acts. How did God reveal His love? He proved his unconditional, undeserved, unprovoked love by sending his only son into the world to provide life to the unlovely, to provide life to the undeserving. It goes right back to John 3.16, maybe the most popular verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he, what? That he gave, that he gave his one and only son. God proves his love for us by providing life to those who cannot earn it, cannot deserve it. And so, as love does, he did it through the ultimate sacrifice. 
His only Son. Jesus displays the love of the Father. In John 15, Jesus says, I am showing you the love that the Father has loved me with. That I love with the love of the Father. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God does not extend His love because we first loved Him. His love is unprovoked. He loves us in spite of us. He proves His love by removing the sin barrier that separates us from His love. This big word, propitiation, it means that Jesus appeases God's wrath and reconciles us to God. We who are enemies are now friends of God through the reconciliation that love makes happen. Not that we volunteered and signed up for it. God just set His affection on us. He loved us first so that we might respond to Him in love. And then verses 11 and 12. Beloved, again, there's our those who have experienced this love. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen, ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. The lives of those who are loved by God in this way that John just described, who have experienced God as love, who love because they have been loved. Those whose lives, right, have been loved by God, the beloved, they become, listen, defined. They, they become marked by His love. In other words, those who have experienced the, mar- the love of God, their lives become defined by how we love one another. Has there been a time in recent history that we've needed to hear that more? Like there is a visible love that is manifest in the lives who have, of those who have experienced, those who are the beloved of God. As we abide in Him, He is love, As we abide in love, His love, and John uses the language here, is being perfected in us. That we are becoming more like Him. He is love. That we are becoming more loving. That we are becoming more lovable. That we are people who are defined by God's love. Now, wake-up call for us who are followers of Jesus. We're defined by a lot of things in our culture. I'm not sure how we love each other is near the top of the list. Have you been on Twitter? No? (laughs) Better off. His love is being perfected in us. Now, I've been wrestling through this message in a lot of ways this week, and God's kind of opened some things in my eyes and life. And one of the things I've been processing this week is that all of us have this kind of innate um, craving in our lives to be loved. Um, We have this just hardwired 
to be loved, that we are relational creatures. And at the same time that we have this innate craving in our lives to be loved, we have this fear of being loved. Um, We have a fear of being loved because to have the craving to be loved comes with the idea that it's going to expose me for who I am. If I really get into this kind of intimate relationship with another person, we'll just use a human relationship. If I get into an intimate relationship with a spouse, um, we'll just use spouse because that's an easy one. Um, that if I, if I really learn to love Ashley and be loved by Ashley, that means that I have to open myself up. A certain level of exposure and vulnerability, right? And so we, we have this innate craving to be loved by God. And yet we have this innate fear of what that looks like. And what that means and how we really expose ourselves to another person. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? And yet we read in the scripture that God has this desire to, that, not just a desire, that God fully knows us and he fully loves us. That the gospel is that God fully knows me. There's no secrets with God. Did you know God knows me better than I know me? That even my brokenness means there's parts of my mental and my conscious that I don't even recognize. That I sin at times without even being aware of it. That's how broken I am. That I'm unconsciously selfish at times. That I'm unconsciously, you know, allow my thoughts to wonder at times. That that I am broken to the point that I don't even understand the depth of my own depravity at times. And God knows all that. He knows every secret, every corner, every darkness, every brokenness in my heart, soul, everything about me. God fully knows in every way. And yet God still fully loves me. Fully knows me. Fully loves me. I don't know about you, but that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Because I can't love like that. I can't know like that. And yet God fully knows and His response to that is not fear or to pull back or, well, I can't involve myself in that type of relationship. Instead, his response, because of who he is, because of his nature, because he is love, is for God to fully know us and fully love us. As a matter of fact, John goes on in these verses in chapter 4 to say in verse 18 that perfect love casts out fear, takes out the fear factor. To be fully known and fully loved by God, it creates this havoc in our lives, this fear of if if they really knew this about me, if they really knew the dark corners of my heart, would they really love me? Then there's this innate fear of keeping ourselves pulled back a little, of keeping the, you know, the secrets of not exposed a little bit, of not really opening up, of not really being vulnerable with another person because how would they respond if they really knew that about me? And so we keep people and we keep God at an arm's length. And yet John says, perfect love, God love, God fully loves, and God God fully knows, and God fully loves. And that should drive the fear out of our lives. That we should not be afraid to come to God. That we should not be afraid of how God feels about us. That we should not keep God at arm's length because we don't feel like we measure up. He knows that, and yet He loves you. Fully known, fully loved by God. God cannot Stop loving. And this enables us to begin to love God. He invites us into this relationship, but take it a step further. It enables us to begin to love others this way. 
that my true intimacy with Ashley is only developed when we reach this place where we want to be fully known and fully loved by another person who has experienced the love of God. That's when true intimacy happens, right? You've had those like breakthrough moments in your marriage at times. Well, there was something that was between you or something you were holding back or a secret or you're living with that fear now and you haven't had that breakthrough. But you know what I'm talking about if you've been in that type of relationship. And when you get through those moments, those secrets, those things are exposed and that person can look at you and say, I forgive you because I've been forgiven. I love you. What does that do? It creates an unheard of intimacy that maybe you've not experienced at that moment in your relationship. Fully known, fully loved. Well, never really experienced this completely as humans, but as we lean into who God is, as we lean into this idea of understanding we are people fully known and fully loved by God, it begins to enable us to seek to love others that way, beginning with those in our tightest circle. So when we read these commands in Scripture, like love your enemies, like how can that even be known? It can, how can that even happen? That can only begin to happen when you recognize you are fully loved, fully known by God. The, the enemy of God is fully known, fully loved by God, which enables me to channel His love into those that I completely disagree with. Because they too are people created in the image of this God. I just want to end by just reading quickly 1 Corinthians 13, because it is the love chapter. And then we'll be done this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, in light of everything I've said, hopefully this will give us a little different glimpse into this famous chapter that we've labeled the love chapter. Notice the things Paul says here. First he says, like, our gifts, abilities, and sacrifices are worthless without love. Right? Gifts, abilities, sacrifice, all worthless without love. Look what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Right? So if I have eloquent speech, I can stand up and give marvelous talks, tongues of men, impress the angels, but I'm not a love person. If I have not love, I'm just noise. Verse 2. Check out these gifts. If I have prophetic powers, right? I'm a true prophet. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, these are powerful gifts. If I have the faith to remove mountains, what? Like these are high-level spiritual gifts. But I have not love, I am nothing. If I have the greatest gifts on the planet, but I have not love, they're worthless. Three, if I give away all I have, right? Everything that I have is someone else's. I'm giving all my money away. I'm giving all my goods away. If I deliver my body up to be burned, if I make the ultimate sacrifice of even my own self, I'm willing to die for someone else, to be burned. That's not a pleasant way to go, by the way. If I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. My gifts, my abilities, my sacrifices are worthless without love. And then he launches in verse 4 into this idea that love is action. All these words he uses are action words. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Patient, kind, right? Not jealous, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered. It keeps no record 
of wrong. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices in truth. It protects, it trusts, it hopes, it perseveres, it never fails. Like, how do we love that way? How do we love like this? It's all action words. How do we love like this? Here's how. His love enables us to love. His love, knowing who God is, leaning into who God is, He is love, enables us to begin to love. We embrace His love for us because God is each of these things. Check this out. God is patient and kind. God is love. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant. God is not rude. God does not insist on His way. God is not irritable. God is not resentful. God does not rejoice in wrongdoing. He rejoices in the truth. God bears all things. God believes all things. God hopes all things. God endures all things. God's love never ends. God is love. Everything 1 Corinthians 13 describes, describes God. And our love for God and others is an overflow of embracing and experiencing His love for me. Fall in love with God, the God who is love, and you will learn to love as God loves. His love is being perfected in us, John says. Hear me today. God loves you. God really loves you. God is love. God cannot stop loving you. Accept His love. Embrace His love. Rest in His love. And may the God of peace and love fill our hearts with love. His love.